On this week's edition of New York Now, Cuomo's book deal is revealed and lawmakers gear up for the last few weeks of session. Bernadette Hogan from the New York Post and Ryan Taranelli from the New York State Law Journal are here with that and more. Then, Democrats are pushing legislation that would clear the criminal history of past offenders in New York. We'll tell you why and why some oppose it. And later, Republican Rob Astorino says he can beat Cuomo at the polls next year, and he's in it for the long haul. He joins us to make his case. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation law prohibiting it, and we will take them to court challenging it. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. So something is happening in New York right now that's never happened before. Two men from Queens, you might be familiar, could find themselves in a bit of legal trouble sometime soon. We found out this week that former President Donald Trump is now under criminal investigation by the New York Attorney General's office, which is working with the Manhattan DA's office. That's over claims that Trump's company misled lenders about the value of its assets to get new financing. So the former president could now be open to criminal charges. And back in Albany, we now know that federal prosecutors are moving forward with their probe into Governor Andrew Cuomo. It's the first time that both a president and a governor from New York have been under criminal investigation at the same time. For Cuomo, he's under investigation for his handling of nursing homes during the pandemic. And it turns out the book he published last year, you might remember it, might actually be part of that investigation. Cuomo's critics have suggested that he kept the true number of nursing home deaths under wraps because that could affect his book sales. Cuomo has said that's not the case, but some aren't buying it. And we found out this week that Cuomo's contract for the book was worth more than $5 million. Senate Republican leader Rob Ork. And I have little doubt that the folks at the DOJ or the Attorney General's office, uh, particularly the DOJ because of their uh, focus of their investigation, would take great interest in how that deal was constructed, when that deal was constructed, um, who worked on the book, all those things, because you're talking about money going into the governor's pocket. Let's break it down with this week's panel. Bernadette Hogan is from the New York Post. Ryan Tarnelli is from the New York Law Journal. Thank you both for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we have this uh, really unprecedented situation of the governor being investigated by federal prosecutors over a number of things. We learned this week, Bern, I wanna to go to you first. We learned this week that feds are now asking lawmakers about the governor's book deal in some senses, and also investigating the preferential COVID testing that his family reportedly received in the early part of the pandemic. Right, yeah. And we also learned that they're still doing it, but go ahead, sorry. Right, no, no, that's fine. We had a ton of news this week, especially, I mean, after, of course, the tax returns were released we learned that the governor made a total of $5.1 million, or he will over at least the next two years. But anyway, so the feds, as you said, are investigating nursing home data, the governor's book deal, and priority testing for family members and those close to his aides. Now, the New York Times dropped this story a couple of days ago that priority special testing was, was, was given to the governor's daughter and, his, and her, her boyfriend as as recent as this past April when she was coming home, it was Mariah Kennedy Cuomo, um, one of his daughters, coming home for, for Easter to visit her father in Albany, the governor. And we also learned that Melissa DeRosa, the governor's top aide, her father, Giorgio DeRosa, a top lobbyist in Albany for Bolton St. John's, was also uh, privy to these 
priority testing schedules that um, now the feds are looking into that. And again, as you said, they're also investigating and, and, and bringing in lawmakers, top lawmakers chairing key committees like the Health Committee, Investigations Committee, et cetera, in the Assembly and the Senate, and asking them, you know, what did you guys know and when did you know it about COVID-19 in nursing homes and what kind of data that the governor's office was sharing with you guys? Because of course, this has been over a year now of controversy, questions, lack of information, and this is something that the feds are now taking interest in. And I think uh, what's what's kind of interesting, and Bernadette's done some great reporting on this, is showing how this is progressing, essentially, you know, asking lawmakers. Uh, if you talk to former federal prosecutors, they say that this, is, that federal investigations usually cast a really wide net. Um, this would seem to be in alignment with that, that sometimes an investigation will start out as topic A and B and wind up as C, D, and E, when they start narrowing in on specific, any potential criminal charges or any sort of civil, civil fines of some sort. Of course, in the Eastern District, this is a criminal probe from what we've reported, um, and many other people have. Uh, so I think this is kind of in line with what a lot of uh, formal federal prosecutors see as a traditional way, a wide net, lots of different topics, finding and trying to track down where any criminal uh, element might be. Now, in terms of the criminal probe, are we talking about, and do we know, I guess is the question, do we know if they're looking at criminal charges potentially against the governor? Is it his top aides, or is that something that we just have no idea about? I, th I think that re remains to be seen at this point. Um, it, it would seem to suggest that at, at this point, they're interviewing some of the people who you would usually think to uh, to talk, right? First, people who have had public complaints against the governor, have com had complaints about his conduct. Um, and so, you know, it may possibly in the few weeks, do we get a clearer sense of who they're narrowing in on or whatever timeline may, might be out there? Um, but short answer is we don't know yet. <laughs> also this week you had this great story. We mentioned it a little bit, but the feds are calling around to a, at least one or two lawmakers asking about the governor's book deal in relation to the nursing homes probe. So what are they asking them? Do we know? Right, and as Ryan just said, and he made a great point, they are casting such a wide net. They're talking to all the key players that were involved intimately or even tangentially, but like might have, you know, had, a, had an impact on this entire situation. But lawmakers um, have, at least three of them, have been interviewed by the feds, by FBI agents and um, prosecutors in the Eastern District. And they're asking them, you know, what was your relationship with the Cuomo administration? And also just kind of like trying to, to, to build, build a, a sort of, I, I suppose, like not even a case, but just some sort of throwing uh, the spaghetti at the wall, almost, almost a basis uh, of where, where they can go from there and right. trying to suss out the relationships between everybody. It seems exactly, like exactly, because of course, you know, what what we have reported, other colleagues in the media have also reported, is all out there, but. Then I think that the feds or you know whoever's looking into this are then going to these people that have been have popped up in these interviews that we've written about and said, hey, can you come in? Can you talk to us? And from what I've heard, at least you know these three three lawmakers, Senator Gustavo Rivera, Assemblyman John McDonald, and Assemblyman Ron Kim, they've all come in to talk. Uh, as far as I know, none of them have been subpoenaed for information, but they've said, you know, if they ask for information, we're totally willing to share documents, etc. But um, I mean, again, it's a lot of gray area. And as Ryan said, you know, I've talked to different sources who have said, look, even we don't know. But I think within the next three weeks, 
we will know a little bit more as to where they're going with this investigation. Speaking of the next three weeks, that is going to be the end of the legislative session. <laughs> On June 10th is the last scheduled date, or the 11th, can't remember. Uh, one big thing that's going to hopefully be happening by then is nominations to the Court of Appeals. We talked about it on the show last week, so I hope you remember that. It's the state's highest court, so there are two nominations that we're expecting by the end of session. There are only seven judges on this court, so two judges is, is a pretty big deal. Ryan, where are we at in that process? Exactly. Just as you were mentioning, it's a, it's a huge deal. It's a time of tremendous uh, turnover at the Court of Appeals and a lot of deep uncertainty about where the court goes from here. Um, there's also going to be a third and a nomination coming up with the, re the uh, age retirement of Eugene Fahey, Judge mm -hmm. Fahey. Uh, so that will occur at the end of the, the year. But to your question, uh, there are two open spots. The governor has since blown a deadline to nominate a replacement for Judge Leslie Stein's position. Um, he is, is also able now to appoint somebody to Judge Paul Feynman's position. Um, Judge Paul, Paul Feynman uh, retired from the quarter earlier this year and shortly passed away. Um, so really, people are waiting. The whole legal community is waiting in anticipation. I talk to a lot of people <laughs> who say, we're just on our toes, we're waiting. Uh, which names are you hearing? Which names are, are you hearing? Um, but everybody is just kind of uh, in anticipation for these two seats, ones that could dramatically alter the court's uh, trajectory uh, when it comes to a variety of things, such as civil cases, how you deal with prisoner rights, um, a whole range of topics. So uh, hopefully, I think we'll, we'll definitely see these in the next coming weeks. They want to get this wrapped up by the end of session. Yeah, hopefully. I think it'll be really exciting to see who's going to be on the state's highest court. The governor has appointed all the judges, and he will do it once again. So that's really interesting. But we have to leave it there. Ryan Tarinelli from the New York Law Journal. Vern Hogan from the New York Post. Thank you both, as always, for being here. Thanks. Thanks. So as we approach the end of this year's legislative session, one issue keeps popping up. That's parole reform. But we're also watching another bill that would go even further. The Clean Slate Bill would clear someone's criminal record once they've served their sentence and finished parole. And supporters say that would help people get on with their lives after prison. But the bill has its critics as well. Daryl Camp has that story. The transition back to society after serving prison time can be difficult. State lawmakers in New York are considering ways to make the change easier. The proposed Clean Slate Bill would automatically expunge the records of certain offenders after they finish parole. That's sponsored by State Senator Zelnor Myrie, a Democrat from Brooklyn. This is an incredibly important point. 2.3 million New Yorkers have a conviction record. These are your friends, these are your family members, these are your neighbors. These are people in our community already, uh, people who are here trying to take advantage of housing opportunities, educational opportunities, and job opportunities, but who are being denied uh, simply because they have a conviction record. What we are doing with automatic sealing and expunging is giving these people an opportunity to not have the worst thing that they've ever done, disallow them from participating in the community that they're already in. While there have been recent changes to the criminal justice system, some advocates say that the system is still broken in other ways. Marvin Mayfield, an advocate with the Center for Community Alternatives, says he experienced those barriers in his own life and is seeing them in the lives of others as well. Uh, one of our, our organization members was Florence. 
Florence is a single mother who was uh, convicted of credit card fraud. Um, I won't get into all the factors that caused her decision. Suffice it to say that she had some unmet needs. So Florence uh, did three and a half years in prison, and after her release, she first had the fight to be reunited with her child, and because of a criminal record, she was uh, uh, denied Section 8 housing. Uh, so for the next two years, she was shuffled from shelter to shelter, and during this time, Florence took uh, multiple training programs to help her uh, be prepared to get a job, uh, but just like in housing, a background check eliminated her from competing in the job market. She was repeatedly denied employment for which she was capable and qualified, and she's still unemployed to this day. Florence is just one of an estimated two-plus million New Yorkers who could benefit from the Clean Slate bill. But the bill is not without some critics from both the left and the right. Albany County District Attorney David Soar says the expungement of records should be done on a case-by-case -case basis and not automatically. That's because some offenses may not necessarily represent the potential danger someone could pose to the public. One such category is sex offenses. While registered sex offenders don't qualify for expungement under the bill, Soares says that doesn't always tell the entire story. We may offer a, a, a misdemeanor plea with sex offender conditions if we, if we don't want to put a victim through, you know, the, 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 the trauma of, of having to take the stand and, and conduct, you know, one of those proceedings. If we decided to go from a, a, a D felony or an E felony to a misdemeanor, you know, Right now, if they pass this piece of legislation as is, those would be the cases that would be expunged, wiped away from, from, you know, from existence. And that individual could be employed somewhere down the line working you know, with, with youth. Some Republicans, meanwhile, said they're opposed to the bill altogether. Senate Republican leader Rob Ort says not knowing that someone has a criminal record could undermine safety and cause problems down the road. I'm the manager at a bank. I'm looking to hire somebody. I can't know that this person stole money in his previous job or her previous job. Don't you think that's a necessary thing for me to know before I employ them back in the financial sector? I mean, let alone murder or other more serious crimes, armed robbery. I mean, there are just some crimes that we need to know. Doesn't mean that gets held over their head forever, but there are consequences, obviously. The bill supporters, however, say that making the process automatic is necessary if the goal is to make real, significant impact in the lives of the formerly incarcerated. We now know that only 0.5% of people who are eligible for this ceiling actually do it. And it makes sense. The application process is hard. Uh, you have to know how to do it. You have to relive your interactions uh, with the criminal legal system. You may need a lawyer to get it done. Most people don't know that they're eligible. And that's why it's important that this process be automatic. When it is automatic, then we see a much higher utilization rate. Supporters say the bill will actually improve public safety by preventing someone with a conviction from being turned away from a job, housing, or education, allowing them to participate in society and make ends meet legally. The measure passed the Senate Codes Committee this week, but it remains in committee in the Assembly. Supporters are hoping to see it pass before the end of session in June. It's interesting to see that there was actually some movement on that bill this week in the Senate, so that gives the supporters some hope that it will pass before the end of session in June. So as I said, Daryl, there are a few other parole reforms that are floating around there. We only have a few weeks left of session. Can you just briefly explain just a few of them? Major ones are elder parole, and the other one is 
timely parole. The major thing with these two is discretion. So with elder parole, whether it be after someone's 55 or 15 years after the start of their sentence, whichever comes later, they'll been, then be reviewed to see whether or not they should actually be released. And then with timely parole, as soon as they serve the minimum sentence, the board goes, hey, are you a danger to society? Yes or no? The interesting part here is that discretion is a factor. It doesn't exactly correlate, but it's something that critics of bail reform actually wanted for judges is Discretion. Is this person dangerous? While bail is not supposed to be punitive, sometimes it does have that function. So it's something that I think Republicans, in theory, could get behind. All right. Interesting stuff. Thank you, Daryl. Moving on now, it was an exciting week in the race for governor in New York. Andrew Giuliani, the son of former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, entered the race, and he's now the fourth Republican running for the seat, making a primary for the nomination more and more likely. But one candidate who's running has already been through all of this before. Former Westchester County Executive Rob Astorino ran against Cuomo in 2014 and came closer to beating him than anyone else who's run against him. Now he wants a rematch, and he says he's the best Republican to stand a chance. We spoke this week. Rob Astorino, candidate for governor, thank you so much for being here. Anytime, Dan. How you doing? All right? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? Good. So far, so good. We just came off our first around the state swing. We put 1,200 miles on the car and we uh, slept in different beds in the in different hotels and met a lot of different people. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a long haul. Sometimes uh, we all wonder why New York isn't the side of Rhode Island. You know, it'd be a lot easier to get around, <laughs> but it's a big state. It's a great state. It's a very diverse state. And it, it's certainly a beautiful state. So I want to get right to the issues because you ran in 2014. That was the last time that you ran for governor. And a lot of the issues have not changed since then. I'm thinking of cost of living in New York, out migration from New York. So let's start right there. If you're elected in your first year in office, what are the top issues that you're looking at to get accomplished? Zeroing in on the economy is number one because that will affect the most people. And let's think about it right now. Why are so many U-Hauls going down to Florida or have already delivered furniture uh, to set up residence down there? Or why are so many other people contacting a real estate agent in the South? Because they can't afford to live here anymore. Aside from the lunacy that's happening right now in places like New York City, a rising crime rate, a quality of life issues. When you add it all up, businesses are saying, why stay here? It just doesn't make sense. It's fundamentally a problem here in New York uh, that taxes and regulations are so bad that people are literally moving or going to Jersey. How crazy is that? Jersey, a high-tax state, is better than New York. It's relief. That's when you know we've plateaued. Too much, too crazy, enough is enough. One issue that you are very familiar with is property taxes. When you were county yep. executive in West Westchester County, you really held the line on property taxes. And I think that everybody would like to see their property tax bill go down or at least not go up as much as it currently is. If you're elected, how do you think we can do that on a statewide level and have property taxes stay flat or maybe even go down for people here who can't afford them? Part of it is you have to give relief to the school districts and of course, local governments. And unfortunately, we've been begging when I was in count, was county, county executive and others begging for relief from Albany. And they they not only don't hear the begging, they make it worse all the time. And so that has to be made up and it's made up locally. Now, we prioritized 
you know, I went all straight years with no tax increase. In fact, we lowered the property tax levy. I walked in, it was the $1.8 billion budget from my predecessor. Eight years later, I walked out with a $1.8 billion budget. Fiscal discipline, making decisions that sometimes are not easy or difficult, but they have consequences. And in our case, it was positive because we work with businesses, big and small. And I had to work with the Democratic legislature the entire time. And we got things done because we worked in a bipartisan way. I used my veto pen when I needed to, you know, when they threatened crazy spending increases or tax increases, I was the stop sign and, and the adult in the room. But, you know, you have to you have to work in a bipartisan way. And I realized that when I'm going to be governor, I'm going to have a state legislature that will likely be Democrat, whether it's going to be a supermajority, I doubt it, or a majority we're going to have to work together. I got elected in Westchester, which is potentially the deepest blue county outside of Ithaca. And yet I won it twice by over 13 points because mainstream Democrats, um, African-Americans, Hispanics, yo hablo espanol, they decided to to get balance and, and to go with us. And then they reelected me. So we were doing the right thing. So another big issue, and you mentioned it, is public safety and crime rates. Yeah. And in the past few years, there have been a lot of discussions on tensions between police and communities of color. It, some areas it's gotten better, in some areas it's gotten worse. If you're elected to governor, how do you reconcile that? It's a big conversation in cities like Rochester, in Albany, in New York City. How do you, uh, how do you bring those communities together and find a solution there where we're not seeing this tension? Well, I did that in Westchester. You know, we have a very diverse population. Yonkers is the fourth largest city. Mount Vernon is an overwhelmingly African-American city. You know, I think the biggest thing is you have to build trust because once you're coming at it like this, you don't want the crisis to hit because then you don't have a reservoir of goodwill to draw from. So you build that trust in good times. So when something bad happens, you can work together collectively to cool temperatures, get facts out, and everybody is around the table working together to solve the problem. Unfortunately, you know, we, we have so much division right now that uh, no matter what happens, there are agitators that want to make things worse. We've seen that. Um, and then there are legitimate voices in the community that want some criminal justice reform, which I think is necessary. Some of it's been done the right way. Some of it has not. Uh, but, you know, this whole defund the police movement to me is bizarre at best and very dangerous at worst. Um, and so, you know, we need to to give assistance to the police, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a dialogue and we should. But but taking away qualified immunity the way they did it is now going to make uh, it's going to make policing nearly impossible uh, to some extent and no cash bail, you know, where we're going to treat criminals like victims and victims like criminals. Something has to give, and that's where I think a lot of people, and I've heard it, including from many mainstream Democrats and others saying, you know what, enough is enough. I think we've gone a little too far here. Time to bring things back. I imagine Democrats will make the same argument against whoever the Republican nominee is, saying that the party has gone too far to the right with the former president, Donald Trump, and they're going to try to tie whoever the nominee is to him. Do you think that a Republican can win in New York while not distancing themselves from the president. You know, the last four years were so red hot politically that we're just now coming out of what I call the Trump fog. 
pro and con, right? People couldn't think straight. I mean, literally, you had things happening, especially in our cities or New York City, where people were walking over homeless people, where you have graffiti, you have boarded up buildings, and nobody was paying attention. Big issues. Nobody was paying attention because they want to scream Donald Trump yay or Donald Trump nay, right? Now that Donald Trump is no longer president, you know, and one party controls everything everywhere and is going so far to the left so fast, people are like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? So at some point, people, you know, get over right, wrong, or indifferent, the guy who's not there anymore. And you have to start focusing on who is in charge. So some are going to scream Donald Trump. It is what it is. Uh, you know, I spent three years on CNN as one of their very few Republicans. And yes, I defended him at times, but I also criticized him at times when I thought it was warranted. And he and I, we might share policies, but obviously I think our style is very different. Uh, I'm more, you know, I, I don't like some of the things that he did as far as his tweets and, and sometimes the way he handled himself. Uh, but I'm just very different. And I think people at the end of the day, like in Westchester, they judged me not because I was a Republican, but because of what I was offering uh, as a campaign in 09, and then what I actually did in government, and I was reelected by a large margin. All right, well, we'll see how it plays out. This is gonna be a very long race, you've declared now. Yes. Uh, Lee Zeldin declared a month ago, and the election, just a reminder of viewers, is not until next year. So we'll have you back sometime soon. Rob Astorino, uh, candidate for governor. Thank you so much. I look forward, thanks, Dan, I look forward to it. And more Republicans could be announcing a run for governor in the next few weeks. If that happens, you can read about it anytime on our website. That's at nynow.org. But we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.